Welcome back to Think Change for another episode where we discuss pressing global issues. I'm your host, Sara Pantuliano, ODI's Chief Executive. Like many others, we've been closely following the situation in Iran, where protests and the violent government response have really captured international attention. The flashpoint was the killing of 22-year-old Mahsa Amini on the 16th of September. Mahsa, who was also known as Gina, was beaten to death following her detention at the hands of Iran's morality police because she was not wearing her hijab correctly. Her death sparked an international outcry. But is this a tipping point in the wider struggle against Iran's authoritarian regime? The country's economy has been ravaged by corruption and international sanctions for many years. And these have intensified following the withdrawal of the US from the Iran nuclear deal. But this isn't the first time Iranians have called for regime change. Just three years ago, protesters took to the streets in response to fuel price increases. And there have been many other instances of civil unrest since the Iranian revolution 44 years ago. However, is there something different about this women-led movement? The rallying cry of Zan, Zandegi, Azadi, women, life, freedom, has galvanized activism today. So I wanted to devote this episode of our podcast to understanding what is currently happening in Iran, what this may mean for rights and freedoms for Iranians and around the world. I've invited three great guests to join me um, to help us understand the situation better. I'm delighted to be joined by Azadeh Purzand. Azadeh is a researcher and writer and a PhD candidate in digital media at the School of African Studies in London. Um, she's worked extensively on human rights in Iran and in particular, the rights of marginalized groups and women. Welcome, Azadeh. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Joining us is also Hoda Katebi. Hoda is a community organizer, a writer, and an activist. Welcome, Hoda. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. And last but not least, uh, we are joined by Irene Khan. Irene is the United Nations Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Opinion and Expression, and she also serves as a trustee on the board of ODI. Welcome, Irene. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to talk on such an important and topical subject. Thank you. Well, let's start with Azadeh. Um, Azadeh, can you sketch out for our listeners the social and political context behind the protest? And, you know, just tell us what's the current state of affairs, um, the main demands of this movement, and, and how these differ across different groups in Iran. As you know, uh, Iran experienced the revolution in 1979, uh, after which the Islamic Republic came to power. And... Uh, it's now about 44 years that Iran is being ruled by the Islamic Republic. Um, and uh, you can imagine in, four, in 40 plus years, multiple generations have, um, you know, come and gone. And um, uh, you can really, I guess, describe the government uh, in my experience, personal experience, and in my observation, in my studies, as a heavily repressive government that essentially wants uh, a homogenous uh, a homogenous society in, in 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 a way in all respects you know whether it's um, abidance by sheer religion in one particular manner um, you know sort of repressing the rights of women minorities and so on and um, at the same time 
in my opinion, you can describe the Iranian society at large, quite a dynamic one. Uh, it, despite the fact that Iran has, uh, has ex- Iranians have experienced um, tyranny really uh, uh, for a long time, the society is not really a static one. And you really feel that, um, you know, uh, the people, the young generation, the various marginalized groups have not really lost their voice in demanding, um, you know, their rights, even when knowing that the consequence of demanding these rights can be arrest, can be torture, can be death, can be losing your job, etc. Socioeconomically, the country has been, you know, going through essentially a more and more of a dire situation, heavily rooted in the Islamic Republic's um, uh, sort of mass level corruption and mismanagement and also the international isolation of the country, the sanctions, and um, just generally the lack of accountability of the Islamic Republic when it comes to, uh, like I said, the rights of the people, but also managing the country at large. Um, you know, we are seeing um, a very um, worrying environmental crisis when it comes to things like access to water, access to clean air, um, you know, uh, on the healthcare uh, front, there is a crisis. Um, and so I believe that this myriad of, of crises and challenges combined with the violence of the Islamic Republic and its lack of accountability um, you know, brought the society to a point of pressure that, um, you know, the people have risen to basically say no longer, we can not tolerate any of this any further and any longer. Thanks, Azadeh. Um, Irene, can you tell us more about the regime's response to the protests and, and particularly what you think are the risks of feminist activism in the context of Iran compared to other international contexts? Well, if I could describe the regime's response in one word, I would say harsh. Harsh and unrelenting attack on peaceful protesters, uh, whether they are old or young. Uh, The Iranian government has reacted very harshly against uh, women, uh, against uh, schoolgirls. For example, we we know about uh, execution of of, uh, young people, young women. Uh, We also have reports of women who have been mistreated, arrested without warrants. So it's not that the, Iran has obviously violated international human rights, but it's also violating its own national laws, its own constitutional protection in the way in which it is reacting against these protesters, arresting people without warrants. And when uh, women have been detained in prison, we have received reports of torture ill-treatment of torture, deprivation of food and water, uh, physical and and gender-based violence, both during protests and uh, in detention. So I think it's a very bleak uh, and dark picture of the reaction that we see from a government that is not willing to give any space at all to any form of protest or dissent. Azad, what do you think the impact of this response, you know, this really harsh response, as Irene is describing, um, is on the country? We are, you're talking about a nation that is not uh, a stranger to um, regime violence, brutal crackdown. You're talking about a country that's um, one of the key executors, uh, regimes that one of the key executors in the world. We have over, we have um, uh, a few hundred executions every year happening in the country. 
we always have uh, political prisoners. We always have cases of torture, forced confessions, sham trials. And even for such a regime, what we experienced and what Iran saw in the past few months is a new low. Two things here are very important. One, you're talking about um, you know, a nation that is very well aware of the consequences of, of expressing their grievances. Um, they know very well what can they have, what can happen to them, to their children. And at the same time, that uh, a regime that uh, uh, a society that is still, even with that uh, consideration, is shocked by um, the willingness of the Iranian regime to open fire on its people who are peacefully protesting. We have children who have been killed. We have very young women and, and uh, girls and boys, women and men who have uh, have been killed. We currently have uh, a, a large number of, um, uh, you know, uh, young individuals who have lost their eyes because of the gunshots and who are scared to even receive um, uh, medical care. Uh, we have mothers of children who as bystanders were, were, were killed and because they have, they now are seeking justice. They have lost their jobs as a, you know, as a mother of a killed, um, not even a protester, a bystander who is a teacher. So I think um, there is no doubt at this point that um, you know this kind of a regime is willing to even go further with violence. And um, the impact, while um, grave on the psychology of the Iranian people, I think has made them more determined to remain resilient and to continue their struggle for, you know, what I really think is what they want, which is an ordinary dignified life that you and I, maybe in different parts of the world can have. Maybe the protests are not going to, we're not going to see the protests every day in huge numbers, but we're definitely going to see dissent uh, in a way more than, uh, more consistently and, and persistently than before, in my opinion, as a result. If I can add a point here, Sarah, I agree totally with what, of course, Azadeh has said. Uh, what I find interesting is that while the Iranian regime's response to activists, to human rights defenders, uh, have in the past, political dissidents, ha has, of course, uh, been harsh, this time round, they're basically dealing with ordinary people on the street, with uh, school children, young women, uh, youth, and so on. And the response tends to be very harsh against these people. Um, there is no room. There is no room uh, for any, any tolerance, tolerance of any kind of uh, expression. And that, I think, uh, is a very dangerous message that is coming out of Iran from the regime. And if I could, sorry, add one thing really quickly, both to sort of like the, the what's leading to this particular, like that first question, as, as well as this question, is that I, I think this moment is also coming both um, in a moment of increased sort of specific government crackdowns on um, regulation and policing of women's bodies in public spaces, as well as since the 79 revolution, um, more and more repression of opportunities for public um, protest um, and sort of uh, places for political speech. So we see more and more places um, on student campuses, for example, where um, political dissidents have already been sort of rooted out, where student organizations have been closed down, um, where even um, leaders of nonprofit organizations like Friends of Mine who have been um, are, are being banned from working for 10 years, Mamnu Kar, which is what it's called, for sort of even consolidating nonprofits to make them more effective. So I think What's what's happening um, 
sort of the this, this sort of massive nationwide protests are coming to head because of also both this this increase of um, of repression and crackdown on bodies in public spaces as well as um, increased closure of opportunities to express political um, like dissidence and 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 just unjust satisfaction um, uh, more and more and and leaving just massive nationwide protests as literally the only option that people have in this moment in order to express their outrage in a way that allows them to feel like they have a voice. Um, and I think that we've seen countless examples um, of lethal force being used in protests um, against um, protesters in Iran. But I do think that this, um, as both Iran and Azad have mentioned, this, there's a lot more of an intergenerational, um, more racially and ethnically diverse um, communities that are coming out right now in the street. And I think that the crackdown is just even more brutal given the, the multitudes of types of people um, that are in the streets right now. Thank you, Hoda, um, for adding those details. Uh, I want to, to move to the you know, the international response. I mean, many countries, including the UK, are announcing more sanctions on Iran um, in response you know, to this crackdown um, on the protest. But how useful are these sanctions, Irene? Um, and, and what could the so-called, you know, international community do that, you know, would constitute meaningful action, you know, be that from government or the multilateral system or civil society? Um, well, sanctions are always a difficult um, tool to use uh, because it can also harden uh, the other side. And what we see, of course, in Iran is Iran has faced sanctions for a long time uh, from certain countries. And if you look for the response, at least until now, we haven't seen any impact of more sanctions. I think uh, sanctions alone is not an answer. We know that even targeted sanctions are not alone, particularly for a country which has uh, lived in isolation. The authorities there have lived in isolation. They're quite prepared uh, not to accept being part of the international community, to, to reject uh, the, the international standards. Uh, so I, I think much more needs to be done than, than simply putting sanctions, more sanctions on, yes, some sanctions are necessary and good and sends a strong message, but to expect change simply through sanctions is going to be extremely difficult. And I think a few other things uh, the, uh, the international community must do. We've heard about the protests on the ground. We've heard about the pressure on civil society and the international community must find ways to support the people, the voices that are coming out from those countries. Yeah, I I think this is definitely something that's extremely complicated. And I think sanctions are also very misunderstood um, by the global community. And I think sanctions mean a lot of different things. So there are targeted sanctions and there are also maximum pressure sanctions, which are implemented against Iran right now. And I think beyond, um, I think the symbolic value of targeted sanctions, the maximum pressure broad-based economic sanctions on Iran actually um have immense impact, but they are impacting the people of Iran and actually emboldening, like Iran mentioned, um, emboldening the uh, the state of Iran itself um, and um, actually allowing the state to have a monopoly 
on things like communications. So for example, that allows the censoring that happens of Iranian people to be even more effective when they have no connection to the outside world and the Iranian government has monopolized all telecommunication because they're sanctioned. Um, or for example, mass media. The fact that Iranians in Iran don't actually have access to even reading um, uh, newspaper articles or media um, in around the world that may have a paywall because they have no access to pay for that paywall in order to read um, news and media that is not either on social media that could potentially be unverified or coming directly from state-owned media in Iran. And so I think, um, and also these sanctions, um, and if we look at the history of sanctions as closely as they've been implemented in Iran, we see them implemented, um, have been in, implemented in Iraq. And there's um, significant evidence that shows the, the how sanctions that have been implemented against Iraq have been responsible for intergenerational um, disease, um, intergenerational trauma, harm to the uh, infrastructure of the community and the the state that is um, very, very takes decades and decades um, to be able to undo that the effects of the community. And so I think. Um, Targeted sanctions may be symbolic, but broad-based economic sanctions are deeply harmful to the Iranian community, to everyday Iranian people, and particularly um, ethnic minorities, um, working-class communities, and women in Iran. Um, and so I think that even calls for larger economic sanctions are ironic in face of demands um, of women life freedoms and the Azadi that are tying both social issues to economic issues. Um, and I think that that's extremely important. I, if I could add one thing, you know, we've talked about the limits of sanctions, um, and I agree with what has been said, economic sanctions harmful to the population, targeted sanctions sometimes are not effective, particularly when not all nations of this world, not all countries are actually applying the sanctions. Uh, and what I think what the international community needs to do is to talk to the friends of Iran talk to the members of the Organization of the Islamic Conference, talk to other regional powers uh, that have a relationship with Iran and use that uh, to create some form of some channels of communication and influence uh, inside the country. Human rights um, uh, violations, this type of eruption uh, protests create instability. So to look at the relationship between the human rights problems that are emerging in Iran and the risk of uh, regional instability, disturbance, to see it in that way. Next door in Afghanistan, we see, again, a very serious problem. And, and to start looking at human rights issues, not just as a human rights problem, but as a problem that could actually destabilize the region. And therefore, there's an interest of everyone in that region um, and, and further to work together to address this human rights problem uh, in the right way, not by suppressing people, but by creating opportunities for people to express their views and creating opportunity uh, for, for more voices to be heard. And so that political, there needs to be some kind of a political dialogue also taking place, particularly with those who would have influence over, over Iran. Thanks, Irene and Hoda Kun. Tagrimor, I've seen this, you know, firsthand in my experience in Sudan, both uh, the negative economic impacts of the sanctions on ordinary people and the importance of the political dialogue bringing together the region. There is nothing more powerful than that. Um, 
I want to move to something, you know, um, important in terms of how this movement has been talked about. Um, Hoda, why do you think this movement has captured imagination? Um, and can you also, you know, comment on how you think this has been narrated in Western media compared to other parts of the world? Absolutely. I think that what's happening in Iran and these protest movements um, absolutely have captured the imaginations, not just of Iranians in Iran, um, but the diaspora as well as the international community at large, um, mainly because of just, I, I think, the demand itself, the central demand of woman life freedom, Zanzindigi Azadi, um, is actually so universally applicable, but has so much history in Iran. So this slogan came from... Um, you know, the Kurdish community in Iran fighting imperialism, capitalism, fascism, and patriarchy. And so I think that, um, you know, these things are felt so tangibly in Iran, as well as sort of their their universal, I think, call to action. Um, and I think that the ways in which these demands so seamlessly bring together gender issues with economic, with social issues, um, and really um, demand that there is no gender delay on progress. And I think that that is such a powerful statement um, especially right now when we think about in the United States, at least this assault on women's bodies, our uh, reproductive rights, um, the assault on sort of um, women of color and black women's bodies in terms of mass incarceration, both in the United States and the UK, as well as globally. And so I think that while these the oppression looks different in different countries, I think at the core, a global patriarchy does exist. Um, a global assault on women's rights does exist globally. Um, and I think that, that that's why so much of, of these protests, I think, have been captured by um, women as well as communities just across the world. And I think that is so incredibly powerful. Um, and also, I think that um, the there's been so much youth that have been involved, right? Like young people have been leading these protests. They've been taken to social media. They've been um, very, very beautifully um, expressing their demands, expressing, um, you know, the basic <laughs> rights to life in Iran um, that I think so many people take for granted elsewhere. And so I think these demands feel so simple to some people, but I think really bring to light um, just the extent of um, state repression and violence that are that are affecting an intergenerational community in Iran, um, not just women, um, not just ethnic minorities and religious minorities, but really um, sort of very intersectionally thinking about workers, students, um, the environmental uh, issues that are plaguing Iran. Thanks. So that, I mean, you talk about fear. Um, Irene, fear and violence are a powerful tool for silencing women. But this movement... Uh, and like actually many other sort of um, movements led by women, has taken hold online and really amassed a global audience. Um, you know, you serve as the the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression and Opinion. What what are some of the wider trends that you you've observed around this freedom of expression, and how can it be balanced? You know, against what we see in terms of online misogyny. Well, uh, this is very interesting. Thanks for raising the issue on, of online, uh, what's happening out there. So it's not just in the off, offline world. Um, we have seen, once again, uh, through what's happening now in Iran, the power of digital technology, how it can empower women and girls and other protesters across the world uh, to create a movement, a protest movement of solidarity. Uh, we see that. And of course, sharing of images, understanding the dissemination of information has uh, sparked uh, protests elsewhere. So this, this ability to organize online has been shown very powerfully. At the same time, 
uh, we also see online violence taking place against the protesters. Uh, for example, there is one instance that I want to raise is that of diaspora Iranian, a diaspora uh, who have faced online violence, diaspora journalists, for example. Some of you will have seen the documentary produced by the BBC about BBC Persian service media workers and journalists who have been attacked, uh, or who, uh, women in particular, who have faced online violence sponsored by the regime across borders. So within the country, but also across borders. So we are seeing new forms of oppression emerging, but we also see new ways uh, of, of organizing and, and gaining solidarity. So there is both the plus and the minus there. What is interesting about Iran, and in particular Iranian women, is that you know, while Iran has one of the most complicated um, uh, surveillance and digital crackdown methods um, around the world, uh, often borrowing from um, Russia and China in terms of methods. Um, the Iranian people, yet again, is I think part of this, you know, I find it miraculous how the Iranian society just remains dynamic no matter what. Um, and this is another example. The Iranian um, uh, society, starting sort of from my generation and a little bit older, really began to be a very connected nation. You know, the youth were always heavily connected. Um, you know, internet uh, became a thing quite rapidly in Iran. And, you know, all the way from my generation, the blog sphere became a place where many, but in particular women, found, um, you know, a, a you know, quote unquote, a safe space to to express themselves. Uh, you know, many of us in my generation as human rights defenders found that found each other twenty years ago plus twenty plus years ago through our blogs, um, and you know, all the way to now social media and Twitter and Instagram and so on. And so the the current generation, this Gen Z, is um, I think they're geniuses in communicating vis a vis. You know, this. Um, uh, you know, these various platforms and they, uh, they are very clear and explicit and um, creative with their demands. And, but at the same time, um, the various um, uh, ways of surveilling, um, you know, Iranians, whether they are in country, whether they're abroad by the Islamic Republic, very convoluted and complicated defamation campaign against Really, many of us, I think if you talk to any human rights defender coming from Iran, and in particular women, no matter where they live, they can tell you horrific stories um, uh, of what they have experienced online. Um, at times, it may not even look like it's the Islamic Republic defaming you, but, you know, the cover is something else. And, and so it's, it's uh, quite a scary um, space uh, at, point, at, at times, and I believe it really restricts freedom of expression in terms of self-censorship, um, uh, because, you know, every, everyone has their own emotional bandwidth. They have a family to worry about. They have, and so, you know, it has its control mechanisms, but I still think that the Islamic Republic has failed to use it as a complete control technique. Um, and uh, if anything, in my opinion, uh, the mobilizing aspects and the empowering aspects are, are winning despite all the uh, grave risks involved. Thank you. We're almost at time, but I want to end with you, Hoda, with, you know, something that in a way became the, the spark of this, uh, of this protest. I know for, for this movement, the hijab 
has come to define and, and symbolize the oppression of the Iranian regime. But in other contexts, restrictions to the hijab actually signify a denial of women's autonomy. And you were talking before, you know, about um, bodily autonomy and, and, you know, what it means in different parts of the world. Can you unpack how you understand these two perspectives and, you know, how restrictions on wearing the hijab in India, in France, you know, in other European nations, it's actually part of the same colonial and feminist issue? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that in your question, it was the perfect answer. Um, and I know this is a, an audio recording, so the, you know, the audience can't see that I also wear the hijab myself. Um, and this is something that is extremely important to me as a practicing Muslim. Um, and I think at the core of the issue, though, is um, state control of bodies. Um, and whether that looks like a mandatory headscarf or mandatory clothing, um, mandatory um, uh, rules on women's bodies that affect mobility, for example, in Iran, access, um, liberty, freedoms, all of these things, whether it is um, in Iran or um, the forced unveiling uh, of young schoolgirls in France, um, the new um, bans that are going across Europe, or even a ban on reproductive rights in the United States. I think the core issue here is a state control of women's bodies. And I think oftentimes this issue is being very much flattened to a protest against hijab, um, which I think both um, does not do justice to the complicated, nuanced um, and really liberate, like very liberatory demands that are being made in Iran right now um, that go across um, more than just a mandatory headscarf. Um, but I think also uh, really, yeah, I, I think they, they simplify the demands that are being made and also erase the fact that there are millions of, of Muslims who would choose to wear the hijab in a free Iran um, who are also protesting in the streets right now against mandatory headscarf rule too. So I think that really um, the, the the nuance of this is cannot be understated in, in that this is um, fighting against a state control of bodies, is fighting against state um, uh, gendered issues uh, and, and, and laws that control women um, and ethnic minorities and religious minorities. Um, and I think that this is, this is all wrapped up um, in, in sort of this global um, this global assault on, on women's bodies that I think is, is unfortunately universalized. I um, mean, I think looks like very different things in different places. So for example, when we also saw um, a lot of women burning headscarves in Iran, um, you know, as someone who wears a headscarf, I was actually celebrating that because that was a way that this, people were um, burning symbols that the state had co-opted for itself. So the state saying that this is a representation of us um, and people were saying, well, we we want to burn what is the representation of you that you're forcing on our bodies. Yet burning a hijab in France, for example, um, is very different because the, the symbol and the context there does not <laughs> is not representing the Iranian state at all. Um, in France, it is representing people's individual identities and um, rights to be able to dress their bodies or undress their bodies as much or as little as they want in public spaces. And so I think that we have to make sure that we're applying a very nuanced and context-specific um, conversation when we're thinking about uh, what we're seeing and also hearing and, and the demands that are happening and recognizing that there, there actually is a, a shared global demand and not one that is just happening in Iran by this like very Orientalist lens that's being applied to this situation. Well, thank you so much, Azade, Hoda, Irene, for helping our listeners gain a deeper and, and more nuanced understanding of what's at play in Iran. Um, the determination, the resilience of the people of Iran and particularly of the women of Iran, I think are an inspiration to us all. And I really hope that, you know, the many freedoms 
they, they are fighting for will finally become a reality. Um, thank you to everyone for listening to today's episode. As always, the research and the other resources we've referred to in the episode will be made available in the show notes. Um, I hope you will join us for the next episode. And if you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate, review and subscribe. Until next time, thank you for listening.